Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. This week's topic was so complex that it took me two weeks to put it all together. I apologize for that. I had a topic in mind for last week when I then received some emails, and they fit perfectly with what I was already going to talk about. So I stuck them all together as, as one podcast. So today we're going to talk about the decline of science. In today's 30,000-foot view of the troubles with science, I thought I'd begin with a book by Charles Babbage entitled Reflections on the Decline of Science in England and Some of Its Potential Causes. It's funny to me how old books had long titles, like Rene Descartes' Discourse on the Method, which is actually the shortened version of that title, and Darwin's Origin of the Species, which is also the shortened version of that title. In contrast, today's books have a one- or two-word title. Not a complaint, just an observation. Charles Babbage was no different with his long title about the problems with science. It's rather shocking to think that someone was already upset about the decline in science in 1830 when you consider how many incredible discoveries and inventions occurred after that time. Babbage starts with this book by talking about the reciprocal relationship between science and education. He asserts that our education, especially when it isn't designed with careful attention, creates our biases that we then bring to our approach on science. This then causes us to look at science through a particular lens that shapes how we approach science to reinforce our previous biases. We then allow this biased science to inform how we educate the next generation so that their preconceived biases are even more strict and erroneous than the generation before. The way he sees it, this downward spiral slowly degraded science until it reaches a point of being nearly worthless while our confidence in it reaches new heights. It isn't hard to see that massive confidence in something that's wrong is not very useful in the short run or the long run. I guess the question we have to ask is, is it true? Is science really that bad? And is our overconfidence in it that bad as well? I know I asked this question at a time when many people have have been publicly caught unable to define what a woman is. That certainly seems bad. But I don't think it's really science per se that suffers with the same dilemma. The real problem is the general lack of scientific understanding that's held by the public. We just went through a period of time when everyone had an opinion about COVID, even though most of them couldn't even begin to explain how the immune system works. In like manner, I see people's comments in that never-ending cesspool known as social media, where people discuss, I mean argue, over what is and what is not valid science. Like any discipline, scientific understanding requires both education and experience something the general public has neither of. The only class that I'm currently teaching for Life University is a research class. One thing that I've seen repeated over and over is that good science is not intuitive. Instead, it is mysteriously colored by our biases, many of which we're not even remotely aware of. In that regard, the first obstacle to overcome is to be invested in any particular answer. Most bad science begins with the concept of trying to prove what we already know to be true. As soon as you're emotionally invested in an answer, that investment will pollute the results. This kind of polluted science is everywhere, to the point where it's difficult to compete against it. Babbage's second concept was that science is corrupted by money. Boy, do we ever know that is true. Of course, this is a huge conundrum. Research is not free, and in many cases, it's extremely expensive. When people pay a bunch of money, 
they're looking for a result that favors them. Every student knows this, as the more money they pay for their education, the more they expect to get good grades. It's a natural response. What is the scientist to do when they take the money and discover negative information that nobody really wants to hear? Please understand that the same is true for the GCSS. Sometimes the research doesn't show us what we really want it to, or what we wish it would. I know from Roger Coleman and Mark Lopes that they've gotten a lot of grief over the years, especially in regard to the scope, when the research isn't as favorable as some people think it should be. We'll talk more about the scope in just a few minutes. First, let's talk more about the decline of science. The rapid descent of science, as we have discussed before, was the silent war on informed consent. I only became aware of this in my lifetime, but the beginnings of it were much further back than that. Edward Jenner, who used an eight-year-old boy as his first test subject, and Louis Pasteur both did experiments on children without informed consent or any real disclosure. It seems this is the real war and how we see it done today. If you fail to give full disclosure, then informed consent can never be more than an illusion. I'm sure the day will come in regard to COVID when it will become public knowledge that nobody gave informed consent for anything that was mandated because nobody was ever given full disclosure, but only time will tell. When we trace this back to Jenner and Pasteur, we can easy, easily see that this is a pattern of behavior and one that's often employed against the most vulnerable of the population, in this case, children. When the boundaries of what's ethical are about to be pushed, you will find it almost always begins with the children. They rarely have a political advocate. I watched this happen in California as the politicians ignored major demonstrations and they took away every vaccine exemption from the children. From there, it was simply a stroke of the pen to take them away from the adults as well. Even at that time, people argued that it was a slippery slope and their opposition was simply on the grounds that taking away rights from a defenseless group was merely a precursor for something far more sinister. It appears they were probably right. But then we moved to another poorly defended group and the Tuskegee experiments. This study was allowed to continue for 40 years as 400 African-American men were allowed to live with syphilis and proper treatment was withheld simply so researchers could trace the natural course of disease, even though penicillin was known to be an effective treatment at that time. We'd like to think this kind of barbarism is a thing of the past, but Robert Kennedy's book, The Real Anthony Fauci, makes it quite clear that this kind of barbaric and inhumane behavior has not only continued, but in many respects, it's actually gotten worse. All the while, true informed consent has gone to the wayside. Lest we think this is an isolated episode, we all know about what the Walter Reed Hospital, but how much do you know about the real Walter Reed? He did yellow fever experiments around 1900. He didn't just keep his patients in the dark about what he was doing, but he kept his researchers in the dark as well. The result was that six people died, including two of his researchers. The only person who was never exposed during the entire experiment was Walter Reed himself, indicating that he knew the danger of what they were doing and he kept it hidden from everyone else. It was around the same time that Giuseppe Serenelli believed that he had found the cause of yellow fever. Determined to prove Walter Reed wrong, he injected three patients with yellow fever without their consent, which triggered the first major public debate about medical ethics. Of course, we have Nazi Germany and their fundamental shift towards eugenics. Eugenics is a fringe belief system that seeks to improve the genetic quality of a human population. It strikes me as coincidental, for lack of a better word, that Klaus Schwab, the founder and leader of the World Economic Forum, grew up in Germany during a time when eugenics was in full swing. 
Lest you think I'm picking on the Germans, my mother's dad and his family were German enough that they all spoke German at home with each other. No, my point is that much of what we do are doing today bears a stark resemblance to the eugenics of the 1940s. To further absolve the Germans, I should mention that eugenics, as we know it, gained momentum in the U.S. and was later exported to the Nazis for political reasons. The true birth of the pseudoscientific idea of eugenics is an extreme and prejudiced interpretation of the works of both Gregor Mendel and Charles Darwin. Not coincidentally, eugenics was first introduced by Francis Galton, Charles Darwin's cousin. This is a long story, one for another day, but consider this for a moment. If racism is a flame, then evolution is its fuel. The argument being that the most extreme interpretation of evolution will necessarily lead to the most extreme forms of racism as well. And that's what we have in eugenics. Back in the 1600s, it was the Catholic Church that would preside over all scientific decisions. In 1633, the Church condemned Galileo to house arrest for the remainder of his life for daring to teach the heresy that the earth is not the center of the universe and that it revolves around the sun. Some people use examples like this as argument for why the Church is not to be trusted. What they perhaps fail to understand is that during this period, the Church was not merely a religious entity, but it was a governmental one. It was not the religious aspect that failed the people and science. It was the governmental one. This should teach us the lesson that any entity, even a church, can become wholly corrupted when it's given unlimited governmental powers. This is something else that we see happening today as private businesses, primarily tech businesses, are given the power to make rules and enforce penalties, like the church of the 1600s. Their powers and authority are far beyond anything that is reasonable or good. There's also the Unit 731 experiments on Japanese and Korean prisoners. Robert Bartholomew, in 1874, did testing on mentally ill patients without consent. There's also the Willowbrook State School, where they gave hepatitis to, to disabled children. I know, how could it get worse than that? Well, here's how. The parents of these children were told they could have their children accepted to the school if they would consent to having them used for medical experiments. Most of these parents couldn't afford the care for their children, so they consented, feeling that they didn't really have a choice. Dr. Saul Krugman then infected them with hepatitis by either injecting them with the virus or by being forced to drink chocolate milk mixed with the feces of infected children. Okay, that's way worse. This went on for 15 years. In light of this information, consider this excerpt from Forbes, written by Leah Rosenbaum. Quote, Although there is little doubt that Dr. Krugman accelerated the discovery of a hepatitis vaccine, the ethics of his experiment have resurfaced as vaccine challenge trials are being debated for COVID-19. Many politicians, medical ethicists, and scientists have come out in favor of the idea, which would include giving healthy volunteers a dose of an unproven vaccine and then deliberately exposing them to COVID-19 to see if it offers protection against the virus." End quote. This is where you throw up your hands and yell, what's the use? When medical ethicists think this is a good idea, then we've reached the point where medical ethics is a two-word phrase with no meaning. In conclusion to this story, in 1966, renowned medical ethicist Henry K. Beecher published an article entitled Ethics and Clinical Research, which listed Willowbrook as an example of an unethical clinical experiment and concluded that, quote, there is no right to risk an injury to one person for the benefit of others, end quote. How sad, then, that this has once again become murky waters, 
and not a case of simple common sense ethics. Just as the Tuskegee experiments were eventually exposed and shut down by a whistleblower, so too the Willowbrook School was eventually exposed by a whistleblower who allowed Geraldo Rivera to see inside the school for himself. From the early 1940s to the early 1970s, the U.S. Department of Energy conducted radiation experiments on the public. Over 20,000 people, without consent or knowledge, were experimented on. In these experiments, they intentionally targeted people groups who were less likely to understand the dangers of radiation. Their subjects included 800 pregnant women and 200 cancer patients. 18 people were injected with plutonium. I don't want to minimize any of the horrendous things that Anthony Fauci has done in the last 40 years, but clearly, if you want to be a serial killer and not be punished for your crimes, it is best to become a research scientist. I'm being facetious, but there's clearly a pattern of behavior here, and it's not a good one. Charles Babbage was right. Even though we've made some major discoveries, the decline of science began about 200 years ago, and the root of that decline was the loss of morals and ethics. Now let's shift gears a bit and make this more applicable to chiropractic. First off, if you've contacted me in the last few weeks, especially regarding what I'm about to talk about, I promise I will get back to you. I'm aware of at least two schools, there may be more, that teach their students about the scope, the nervoscope, during their curriculum, but they don't allow its use in the clinic. When pressed about this, they will say that they teach about it because it's historical significance in the profession, but they don't allow it in clinic because, and here comes those magic words, there's no evidence to support its use. Well, if that makes you mad, then wait till I tell you this. They are correct. However, what they're saying is also intellectually dishonest. I can pretty much guarantee you that anyone who says that is saying it because they heard it from someone else and not because they've actually studied the research on the topic. That's why I think they say it having no idea how intellectually dishonest it really is. Perhaps you've heard the old story about how there's no evidence that parachutes work. In order to study them, you would need a control, and that would mean throwing someone out of an airplane without a parachute. You might have gotten away with that in the 1800s or in Nazi Germany, but good luck getting that past an IRB board today. Consequently, the effectiveness of parachutes has never been studied. If I then said that there's no evidence that parachutes work, I would be technically correct, but intellectually dishonest, because there's no evidence that they don't work either. I've often said there's a difference between being undefeated and never getting in the game. It's a true statement for me to say that I've never lost in the Super Bowl, but we all know that is intellectually dishonest, and it's inherently misleading. Unfortunately, I hear way too many of these kinds of statements from people who posture as if they know the science, but they're only repeating what they've heard from someone else. All too frequently, this is the case when it comes to the science of the neuroscope. First, we need to talk about the difference between a validity study and a reliability study. A validity study is measuring an instrument to determine if it does what it's reported to do. In regard to the scope, we know that it measures temperature differences, and it does it with very little error. As Roger Coleman likes to say, the scope works perfectly. If I touch the right probe, the needle moves right, and if I touch the left probe, the needle moves left. The problem is, what does it mean? When someone says the scope lacks validity, they're technically incorrect. It has almost perfect validity. What it lacks is reliability. So let's talk about that. Reliability is how we know that what we tested is an accurate measurement of reality. To do that requires that we have a model for interpretation. For example, we talk about reading the break. That's fine for clinicians and practical application, 
but it's not good enough for science. This is where we get the rub, and I know Roger has had many people tell him, well, just do the study and prove what we already know is true. That statement alone is proof that people really don't understand how science works, or even the fact that science isn't to prove what we know. Science is how we discover what we don't know. Is it possible that there are things we don't know about the scope, or even worse, things that we don't know that if we did know, we wouldn't like? The problem is that we need proper study design. To design that study, we need to know how much of a swing is required to be considered a break. What does it mean to find a break? This was the topic of last year's Meeting of the Minds. As part of that seminar, Josh Lawler and Brittany Cedar presented on the Titron. The Titron has a function that allows you to see actual temperature. What we saw was that there were times when the temperature differential had a swing toward the right, for example. But in real temperature terms, we saw that both sides were getting colder relative to the rest of the spine. But the right side was not as cold as the left. That's why the needle would swing that way. This is interesting because there's been a lot of debate about some of the things stated in the chapters regarding hot and cold nerves. What we saw only further convinced us that we don't really know for sure what is happening or what we're reading when we get a break. We could go on with that topic for some time, as we did at the meeting of the minds, but my point is to make it clear that if we don't know for sure what is happening, then we have to overcome that obstacle before we can design a proper study to determine reliability. But here's the most important question. Does the lack of reliability studies mean that the scope is of no clinical value? To answer that question, I will simply tell you this. Palpation studies have demonstrated that palpation fails both the validity and the reliability front, yet every chiropractic school in the country teaches it as part of their curriculum. Paul S. Nolet et al. did a study published in 2021 in Chiropractic Manipulative Therapy. In their results, they state that, quote, we identified 2,023 eligible articles, of which 14 were low risk of bias. Evidence suggests that reliability of soft tissue structures palpation is inconsistent, and reliability of bony structures and joint mobility palpation is poor. We found preliminary evidence that gluteal muscle palpation for tenderness may be valid in differentiating low back pain patients with and without radiculopathy. Reliability of manual palpation tests in the assessment of low back pain patients varies greatly. This is problematic because these tests are commonly used by manual therapists and clinicians. Little is known about the validity of these tests, therefore their clinical utility is uncertain. High quality validity studies are needed to inform the clinical use of manual palpation tests." End quote. I don't think that any of us would want to practice without palpation. The problem is that palpation does not lend itself to being studied very easily, but there's also a potential for tremendous error in application. But these errors are so subtle that they are often missed and they go uncorrected. I'll give you an example. If the patient is seated and you make a light contact over the SI joint, you then rotate their shoulders and simply feel the motion of the joint. Then you are properly performing motion palpation to assess for joint motion. If instead, you rotate the shoulders and then push with your fingers to force joint motion, you are improperly palpating because you've moved from assessment of natural motion to the creation of an unnatural, potentially even restricted motion. That's not the same information. Or to make matters even worse, if you lay the patient face down in a prone position and then push on the SI joints to assess for motion, you're not only not palpating a natural motion as the patient is prone and not erect against gravity, but you are assessing the SI joints in isolation 
and not in conjunction with the movement of the rest of the spine. You're also doing it with the bent or table in position to block the pelvis and to create undue influence on how the joint moves. This means your information is not necessarily accurate, but it might even be contrary to how the same spine moves when walking, for example. One of the things that makes it difficult to study palpation is that all three methods are considered valid palpation, but I don't think they are. I also think that doing it correctly will yield better results than doing it incorrectly. Without this specification, the results get convoluted and we end up with studies that show inconsistencies in the value of palpation. When you're talking about a skill to be performed, why should we expect anything less from scoping? And why are the two treated so differently? It's my opinion that the real reason why schools reject the scope and not palpation is because the schools, or at the very least, some of their employees, are embarrassed by things that are uniquely chiropractic. Palpation is not exclusive to chiropractic. My wife would often use palpation as a dentist. But the scope, well, that's uniquely chiropractic, so they don't want to get outside the mainstream of what is accepted as medical science. This is why that battle can't be fought with science. It's really a philosophical argument masquerading as a scientific one. Scientific American recently published an article talking about how very little of what we consider standard medical practice has any randomized controlled trial behind it. Strangely, I don't hear anyone arguing that they should shut down the hospitals until they can prove their value. We know that they help people in car accidents and who suffer heart attacks and a myriad of other acute life-threatening injuries. But we also know that they tend to overtreat and generally fail when it comes to long-term chronic conditions. Okay, it's not perfect, but it's better than nothing. So why is it that there are many in the chiropractic profession, never mind the lay public, who think that we shouldn't do anything until it's unambiguously proven that what we do will help the situation. I'd like to say that it's simply because they're scientifically inept, but I fear it's probably worse than that. They know that the public is scientifically inept, and they've given them the opportunity to misuse the science in favor of their own personal biases and agenda. And that brings me to the final thing I'd like to talk about today in regard to the decline of science. Let's take a famous story. Let's say it's Hamlet, or Macbeth by William Shakespeare. I choose that particular author due to the ambiguity of his language and writing. We could all agree that Macbeth is an actual book or play, and we could agree on its content regarding which words appear on which pages and in which order. Nobody questions what the book says. However, we could have tremendous discrepancy in our interpretation and our understanding of what it means. Such is the case with science. The data is the data. And we can all agree on what the data we have collected is, but it's our interpretation of the data that will lead us to correct and incorrect conclusions. Some people might want to read into Macbeth more than what the author actually said. Still others may have missed a crucial plot point and their interpretation is incomplete. These aim errors can easily occur in science when we attempt to interpret the information. There have been many times when I read a study and I'm impressed by the data that was collected only to then read the author's conclusions and be completely underwhelmed by their inability to grasp the complexity or importance of what they had just discovered. This is why I think it's so important to read the entire study and not just the conclusion and the results. You may find in the data that the authors missed the most important part of the entire study. The biggest problem with trying to do a study on scoping is variations in scoping technique. A few weeks ago, I was proposing to my wife a study design for looking at the scope. She suddenly said, you, or whoever, 
is going to have to be the only examiner. I said, I agree, but why do you say that? Well, my study design involved one group that was palpation and adjustment, and the other was scoping and adjustment. No palpation. My wife said, if you had somebody fresh out of school, don't you think that you would do better with a scope than they would do with palpation? Yes, but there's another reason as well. Not only is there a difference in our assessment abilities, but there's a difference in our adjusting abilities. That difference can skew and even invalidate all of our findings. The reason why I was suggesting the study design to my wife was because of an idea that Mark Lopes suggested to me. He suggested that one avenue for studying the scope would be to do outcome studies. An outcome study is a unique type of study, one where you're looking at the ultimate outcome to determine if the system is working. In this regard, we could test a system utilizing the five points of the Gonset system, visualization, static palpation, motion palpation, instrumentation, and x-ray, against another system, say, motion palpation only, and determine which system produces the best outcomes. In this way, we don't have to demonstrate the reliability of the scope. We simply have to show that its use leads to better outcomes. In this way, we would be demonstrating what we really know, which is that when the scope is used in conjunction with x-rays and palpation and such, it plays an important role, even if its standalone ability is suspect. I think that's probably the best place to leave this topic. I hope this helps you to have a better understanding of research, as well as why we get so much pushback on the scope. Sometimes it's necessary to push back on those who would say that there's no evidence for the scope, when that's not entirely true. The scope does measure what it's supposed to measure. It's the interpretation of that where we need to do some work. Ultimately, I think outcome studies are the best way forward from here. If you're a chiropractic student anywhere in the world, I would encourage you to become a member of the Gonstead Clinical Studies Society. Membership is extremely affordable for students, but then you'll get the GCSS newsletter, which contains many articles written by Gonstead diplomates and fellows, with clinical pearls that are very valuable. You can check it out at gonstead.com. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time. Thank you.